come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode number 97 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here, I have for you Odyssey Through the Ones number 23, as I'm going to be pairing up for the featured reviews here of The Vigil, that is from 2019, but it's getting its wide release here in 2021. And then the movie that I paired it up with is from 1951 of The Medium. Now, these two make kind of an interesting double feature here about like rituals and kind of the implications as well as repercussions of them. And then also on here, I have mini reviews of It Follows. I got to see the screener for Skinwalkers, The Howl of the Ragaroo. And then also on here, I have The Babadook. Now, I think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here, so I won't waste any of your time, and I'll get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini-reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review this week is going to be It Follows. This is from 2014. This is written and directed by David Robert Mitchell, and this stars Michael Monroe, Keir Gilchrist, and Olivia Lucardi. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a young woman is followed by an unknown supernatural force after a sexual encounter. So this is a film that I rented after no longer working at Family Video. I believe my buddy and I watched this one with another movie that night. I'm pretty sure we watched like Birdman, the one with Michael Keaton. And then after the initial viewing, I liked it, but I wasn't fully sure what I had seen. I've caught part of it another time with my family, but I hadn't seen it all the way through since that initial viewing, and it's been a long time. I am now as part of the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. So after reading over my original review, it appeared that I learned about this movie from its trailer. Something else that I saw was that this movie was based on like older horror films. What is interesting, though, is that this one has a timeless feel. It is set in Detroit in neighborhoods that are a bit run down. We are seeing older televisions while that are being watched, 
But then the character of Yara has a futuristic clamshell that she reads books on. I like that we're getting a movie that has a you know throwback while being set in a modern era. Now, where I want to go next would be the major concept theme of this movie. At its core, this is a coming-of-age tale. We have Jay, who has seen an older guy. There is a line that is dropped later in the movie that she might not actually be a virgin. I have a tough time believing that with what happens between her and the guy she supposedly slept with. Regardless, I know the major idea behind this is Jay losing her innocence by sleeping with Hugh. This causes her to be followed by this creature. I did hear on a podcaster on the Summer Series episode where they don't necessarily think that it's an STD that we're dealing with here, but more about how becoming an adult gets you closer to death. That is closer to how I feel and how I read this movie, where Jay has lost her innocence and is now struggling with the realization of needing to survive. The thing in this movie that is interesting is it doesn't have a permanent form, and that is, you know, the it. It can look like someone you know or someone you don't, whatever it can do to get closer to you. I think this is creepy as it allows the movie to use different actors to play it. We get things like Greg's mom or Jay's deceased father. We get this man that is quite tall, an older woman, and heck, even Greg himself. On television, there are different types of old sci-fi movies that are playing that deal with aliens that are monsters. I think this is an interesting touch here is that we have this entity that is unknown. They don't know how to stop it. No one is really an expert on it, and they're just kind of doing things that they think will help. I think this idea that no matter what they do, it continues to follow them. And I like how nobody is an expert just out of nowhere about it, and that this is kind of an unknown entity. Now, a major part of the movie, though, is the acting. I think that Monroe does a great job as Jay. She is this younger woman that is, you know, coming into womanhood. She is faced with a horrible decision that she didn't necessarily agree to. I know there are a couple of things she may or may not do that would make her villain-esque. What it comes to surviving, though, I can't fault her. I like Guilt Chris as this guy who is willing to do anything for her. I've been in this position. The stakes haven't been this high, though, but I've definitely been put in the friend zone. I like Lily Seppi as well as Lucardi in their minor roles along with Jake Weary and Daniel Zavato. I do want to give credit to everyone that plays the entity as well. They all bring a different level of creepiness that works for me. So I believe the last things I want to talk about here would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. For the effects, this movie does use some CGI. There isn't a lot of it, though. What we do get here is looks like to be just enhancing some things, which works for me. I do like the makeup that is used in this creature as well. I do know we get some CGI during some of the attack scenes, but I like what they do with it. The cinematography is well done as well. We linger on things to give character to this rundown area that we're living in, as well as to some of the characters. I do have a gripe this movie does run a bit too long, if I'm going to be honest. What I don't have issues with, though, is the soundtrack. It has this great synth feel to it that just adds another layer to this movie. I've listened to it a few times, and it's one of the better ones in the last decade to me. So in conclusion here, I think this is a different take on a story that we've seen before, and that works for me. I like that we have this entity that we don't know about and no one really is an expert on. The acting works well in bringing these characters to life. I think that the effects and the cinematography are good. The soundtrack is great. If I have any issue here, I think that the movie does run a bit long. There is a lull in the middle that makes sense, while I think it also could be trimmed a bit. Regardless, though, I think this is a great movie, in my opinion, and one that I definitely recommend to horror and non-horror fans alike, just because it is so well made. So my rating here for It Follows is a 9 out of 10. And then up next for you, I have a screener that I got to see for Skinwalker, The Howl of the Ragaroo. This is from here in 2021, and it's actually getting its wide release here in September. Now, this is directed by Seth Breedlove. He also co-wrote this with Heather Mosier. 
And then this is narrated by Lyle Blackburn. Now, this is another documentary that was sent over to me as a screener from Justin Cook. Now, I've seen two other ones this year from Breed Love, and they have dealt with other cryptid lore. When I saw the title for this one, and knowing that it dealt with skinwalkers, I was intrigued. Now, I did know that this name is werewolves that were used amongst Native American tribes here in the United States. And then to get into this documentary here, the synopsis is, Do real werewolves exist? In the American South, legends of encounters with a creature that stalks the swamps and bayous, an ancient evil called the Ragaroo. Now, where I would start breaking this movie down is giving a bit of the backstory that we start off with this movie with. We learn how lore dates all the way back to Native American days. There was a tribe that practiced a ritual that was considered forbidden and involved eating the flesh of your victims. By doing so, this would make you stronger. Now, the moment I heard this, it made me start to think of the Wendigo as well as the movie Ravenous. Now, the Wendigo is an evil entity that roams the woods and kind of changes people to be evil. This documentary actually references as well as a possible you know, backstory for werewolves in the United States. Now, from this opening introduction to the lore, what I like is that we get interviews of people's stories that correlate to different chapters that the movie is giving us. Going along with this, we get cave drawings, paintings, and other art that gives us a visual of what they're saying. I think there's also an added element here in showing how far this goes back as well. Something else added in is reenactments. For me, this adds tension. Now, I know what we're seeing isn't real, but much like you'd get in Unsolved Mysteries, we're hearing these people's stories is one thing, but seeing it play out, even if it is a reenactment, adds an element for me. Now, I like this documentary tries to pull in as many variations of this creature as they can. There are a lot of people from different places moving to Louisiana where this is focusing. It is an interesting land. The northern part is prairies and normal land you would associate with the American South. The southern part, though, is unique with swamps and bayous. This movie even seems to consider how the environment is changing, and I got a vibe here that man is partially to blame. There is a part that needs the Mississippi to overflow for the nutrients, but due to building levees, it cannot anymore. There's also this fear of the swamp disappearing as salt water from the Gulf overtakes the freshwater areas due to, like, I mean, it's flooding that it's happening, but it's like hurricanes and stuff to that effect is causing this as well as the rising ocean levels. To circle back to something that was stated, there are a variety of people moving to Louisiana and bringing their lore with them. Now, the Ragaroo is believed to be a variation on the French term for werewolf of Lopgaroo. This makes sense as the how deep the roots are in like of French people in this area. We also get stories of this curse, like in many werewolf movies of today in the past, including Curse of the Werewolf about a child being born on Christmas Eve. Changeling lore is also another take on it, and wayward spirits that protect the forest. There are even tales of how ragaroos aren't necessarily evil, but protectors of the land. It would seem to me there's a lot of research done here, and people were sought out to give the deepest look at all of these stories. Now, since I don't want to spoil this and break down each story individually, I will say that much like other documentaries from Breed Love, I enjoyed this. He has an interesting take on exploring these legends. There's a connection that I make as these urban legends in the area, and we all have stories like this growing up. Do I fully believe that everyone here that was interviewed saw what they did? Not necessarily, but I do believe that they saw something they can't fully explain. I like the reenactments that are added along with the older drawings and art used to correlate back. This is another well-done documentary. Now, if you're into cryptids and want to learn more about skinwalkers, I'd recommend this for sure. We're not necessarily getting as much about actual people's takes on it or like stories and everything, but we're getting much more of like the legends behind everything that lead up to modern day takes. So my rating here for Skinwalker, The Howl of the Ragaroo is a 7.5 out of 10.
And then for those of you that are interested, this is hitting September 14th on a number of platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, and Fandango Now. And there's also going to be a special edition Blu-ray that is $18.99 and DVD for $14.99 from their official store as well if you would like to check this out or pick up a copy for yourself. And then the last mini review for this week is going to be The Babadook. This is from 2014. It was written and directed by Jennifer Kent. It stars Essie Davis, Noah Wiseman, and Daniel Henshaw. This is a drama horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production amongst Australia and Canada. This is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a single mother and her child fall into a deep well of paranoia when an eerie children's book titled Mr. Babadook manifests in their home. Now, this is a film that I first checked out as I learned about it listening to podcasts. I started to make a list of films that I had missed for the longest time as I was bad about watching new horror films at that time. Now, updating this review is really giving me some fond memories because it started me down this journey that I'm on today. Now, I've given this a third viewing with the last time, like the second viewing was in the theater, and then now I'm giving it watch with Jamie for the summer series for the podcast Under the Stairs. Now, when I first heard about this on podcast, I knew this was good, so I was intrigued. And I do agree. The movie and the story that it has is interesting to me. I like the idea of this book that is about this creature, but it doesn't give really all that much background. It is creepier seeing the images as it's supposed to be geared towards children. I love that Amelia doesn't think it is real, but she isn't sleeping. She's slowly descending into madness, and it makes you start to wonder, the creature, is it real or has she lost it? The concept of the Babadook getting inside of her helps to make it ambiguous as well. Now, there are some deeper themes here that I took to heart after multiple viewings. Amelia, who's our main character, is told by Claire, who's her sister, that she wants to talk more to her, even though it doesn't feel that way. Amelia has closed herself off after her husband of Oscar passed away. She never truly dealt with that grief, which is why she won't celebrate Samuel's birthday on the actual day since the anniversary of the death of her husband. The lack of sleep and exhaustion add to the building of frustration and change what we see in her character. It is also overwhelming to deal with what she has to in your raising this child that you share with the person that you lost. Going from this, we also have another element here. Samuel is afraid of monsters. When they read the Babadook, this gives him a representation as to what he believes he has seen. There is something here that I didn't pick up on until his last viewing. It is when his mother starts getting upset that he sees it, and there's a correlation there, especially since the Babadook is targeting her. It makes sense with the images in the book as well. Now, to the pacing of this film, I think it's well done. We establish that Amelia is struggling from the beginning. I like the transition that we see her lying in bed when it will get bright, you know, fast, signifying that she isn't sleeping, and even if she is, it's not restful sleep. The longer this goes, the more we see the aspects above that I've said, you know, already growing within her. When she starts seeing the images of the Babadook, it really made me feel uneasy as well. After multiple viewings, I really like the ending and the implications of what has transpired. What is interesting, though, after this last viewing is I do feel like the movie drags just a bit. We are getting in just over 90 minutes, which is kind of interesting that I feel that. But it isn't enough to ruin it, but it's just something I notice where I think they kind of drag in the middle before it kind of amps back up for the ending. I will say that, though, for the acting, that's good. Davis is, does a great job. I feel horrible for her and know that when you aren't sleeping, how irritable and how hard it would be to function. The longer this goes on, the worse she got and is quite believable. Wiseman was extremely annoying and got on my nerves, but I almost wanted his character to get murdered by how bad he was, but his acting is so good to get a reaction out of me. I am acknowledging that he was supposed to play the character the way he has, and I think he does an excellent job of this way. 
the more I see this, the more I realize how well he did, to be honest, for sure. Now, the rest of the cast do round this out for what was needed as well. Now, next I want to take you as a creature in this film. I think he looks great. We don't get to see him a lot, and it's only glimpses, and I think that works even better for it. It makes it that much scarier. I did find it interesting as well that he was modeled after Lon Chaney from London After Midnight, which I believe is a lost film, but we have like images of what he looked like there. There aren't a lot in the way of effects really in this movie, but the ones that we do get look good, so I have no issues there. The editing of this film is really good as well. They incorporated a lot of cartoons and edited in creatures into things on the television. Now, some of these were creepy, and I liked it. And I would also say this film is shot very well in my opinion, so you know, kudos for the cinematography, as I think that helps to hide things as well. Now as for the soundtrack, I think that it does what it needs in order to build the atmosphere. Going along with this, I do have to commend the film for its sound design, the use of a creature saying its name is creepy, they also seem to incorporate bug sounds as well as this monster's howl that I think ties back in with things that were you know, seen earlier like knocking. This did help to enhance the film for me. So now with that said, I would recommend this one. The story and concept of this film are great and quite socially relevant. The acting is good. The editing of this film is well done. The creature looked really good, and I think the sound design helps to build the atmosphere that we need. I do think there are some people who still don't care for this, especially with the implications at the end. You still should give this a watch, even if you aren't a fan of the genre. And I'd say this is a very good film overall and definitely worth a viewing. So my rating here for The Babadook is going to be a 9 out of 10. So I think what I'm going to go ahead and do, that's all I have for mini reviews. So I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Explain this how I feel us. That's a leave now. This is Litvak. There is something very, very wrong here. We have to go now. It won't let you live. Mrs. Litvak, what won't let me leave? The magic will make you see terrible things. The magic will find another broken person. And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be The Vigil. This is written and directed by Keith Thomas. It stars Dave Davis, Menashe Lustig, and Malky Goldman, while also featuring Lynn Cohen, Fred Melamed, Ronald Cohen, Natty Rabowitz, Moshe Lobel, Ephraim Miller, Leah Kalish, 
Ethan Stone, Hunter Menken, Emilio Vitolo, Logan McCray, Spencer Zender, Dunn Lasky, Rob Tunsell, and Bluma Gross. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a man providing overnight watch to a deceased member of his former Orthodox Jewish community, finds himself opposite a malevolent entity. So this is a movie that I heard about through podcasts and it went on my list of things to check out. I'm a sucker for religious-based horror. What made this even more interesting is that looking at the Jewish faith is something that is interesting to me because I am fascinated by religion and kind of learning more about them. And then this is also kind of creepy that what they do with people that have passed away, I don't want to diminish your faith or kind of put it down. It just makes me unnerved. And no matter what your beliefs are, as I was saying though, this is a scary idea. So before I jump into the movie itself, let me do some of my featured notes. This is director Thomas's feature film debut. He did have a short in 2017 by the title of Arcane, which I have not heard of, but it seems that he is also attached to a remake to Firestarter, which is interesting. As a writer, he has just this in his short film. Moving to the actors, our star here of Davis has 24 credits. The first that I saw him in was The Big Short, which I did like quite a bit. Nine of what he has done is in horror, and I've seen two of them. His first was in 2013 with a movie called Heebie Jeebies, which I hadn't heard of until now. It looks like he's done some sci-fi channel looking stuff like Ghost Shark and Summer Shark Attack. I've also seen him in Jeepers Creepers 2 and now this movie. His co-star of Cohen has 54 credits. Her first of the seven that I've seen her in is Munich and Invincible. Of the movies, she's done two that are horror films. The first was in 2013 with a movie called 37, which I hadn't heard of. And then I've also seen her in this movie here. Now, Lustig, on the other hand, has been in three movies. This is the only horror film and the only one that I've seen. And then much like the same, Goldman has two acting credits. This is her only horror film and the only one that I've seen so far. So we start this off with getting a bit of background information. For thousands of years, those of Jewish faith have practiced the ritual of a vigil. The body is watched around the clock in shifts by a shomer, or a, which is pretty much a watchman. They read solemns while doing this to comfort and protect the soul from unseen evils. Usually this is done by family or friends, but there are people that are paid to do this. The movie then shifts us over to what seems like sounds of war. There is a woman who is looking back behind her to a man with a gun. He is being commanded to shoot her by somebody speaking German. The movie then takes us to Yaakov Ronin, who is portrayed by Davis, as he's in a bathroom trying to compose himself. He takes a pill before leaving and returns to the group that is led by Lane, who is portrayed by Rabinowitz. I'm not entirely sure what the reason they are there is, but it seems like they're all trying to leave the Jewish faith. This is some sort of like support group. They had a life that has more structure to it, and they're trying to make it out on their own, but it's difficult. This includes hearing about how Yavik thought he had a job interview nailed until they needed his resume. He proceeded to write it on a scrap of paper for them, and so needless to say, he sounds like he doesn't end up getting that job. After the meeting ends, Sarah, who is portrayed by Goldman, seems interested in Yakov. He's a bit awkward in trying to talk to her, but she ends up giving him her number. He is uneasy, though, when he looks out the window and sees Reb Shulman, who is portrayed by Lustig. Now, he offers him a job to Yavik. It is a one-night gig, just for, I think, five hours, $400 to be a shomer. Yovik is reluctant, but his medication is expensive and he's struggling to make ends meet. The job takes him to the home of Mrs. Latvik, who's portrayed by Cohen. Her husband has passed away. 
She takes a look at Yavik and wants him to leave. She doesn't think he's good for the position. Reb doesn't have anyone else, though, as he did have somebody else lined up, but they fled without stating why. And they're actually pretty reliable, so it makes Yavik a little bit more, you know, reluctant and a little bit nervous. But Mrs. Latvik does have dementia, though. Yavik ends up taking on this position and settles in for the night. It isn't as easy as he thinks, though. He has to sit up with the body of Ruben, who is was, you know, the husband to Mrs. Latvik, for five hours, as I said. There is a shroud over him. From the beginning of the night, Yavik hears movement upstairs. There are lights in the room that flicker on and off. He also sees this person in the dark. Are any of these things actually happening, or is Yakov's past making him uneasy? We get to see a traumatic event that has scarred him. There could be something supernatural happening here as well. So that's going to be where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie, is that get you up to speed with the setup of this movie and what it's trying to do. Where I want to start is that... Something I stated in the beginning of this, I love learning about, you know, religions and stuff. So having this Jewish faith here and this ritual that they're doing, I've been to a wake where you see the body of an individual and you go off and have a meal at their home or like out to lunch somewhere, you know, something like that. This is different. The body is kept at this place overnight and someone has to be there watching it. They are concerned evil spirits can torment the soul. So prayers need to be recited to help this. I have to give credit to the Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast as they are one of the people that featured this movie and they were surprised that this idea hasn't been explored before and I agree with them. Taking out anything supernatural, this is just a terrifying idea to me in general. Where I think I want to shift this would be to look at this character of Yaakov himself. We see he's unstable in the beginning. His faith has been shaken by something. Reb is concerned with pulling him back in and helping him. He also wants him to do something that probably isn't ready to do at this time with his mental state. Yaakov needs the money, though. Reb seems to be undoing what Lane and his group and, like, their meetings and stuff are trying to do. And then Dr. Marvin Kohlberg, who is voiced by Fred Milamed, is helping through medication. As that They're kind of having, like, a two-thing approach here where he has, you know, group meetings, therapy, and medication. Yaakov has a dark past. He turned his back on his faith, and Reb wants him to return. I think that Davis does a solid job at being this broken person and seeing the growth he has to deal with through the events of this night. Now, I've already said that I like the idea of this ritual and how it scares me. There is a supernatural element here. We are getting a demon that is called the Mizak. I'm not sure if this is made up for the movie or actually being pulled from Jewish lore, but I was quite interested in learning more about it. It has this creepy aspect to it that it feeds on the souls of its victims. Its head is turned around so it's looking into the past. It also torments its victims. There are some interesting reveals here with Ruben, Yaakov, and even Ms. Latvig. How things that are said fit in caught my attention and having Ruben be almost an expert on it works. Now there is a convenience here part the way through the movie though. That is a slight issue for that if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Now that should be enough of the story so I will switch to the acting. I've already said that I liked Davis' performance. Lustig is interesting as this guy who has good intentions for Yaakov but I think they're also self-serving since he's religious. Goldman is good for giving Yaakov hope. I like how creepy Cohen can be. We don't know if Mrs. Lutvig is suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, or is she just saying about this entity is true or not? Yaakov is our star. Everyone is guiding him where he ends up, including, you know, Rob Tunsil as the embodiment of the demon Masik. So the last thing I'm going to go into here would be the effects, cinematography, and the soundtrack. We don't get a lot for the effects, but it is that type of movie. I think that we're getting a combination of practical and CGI, which works. The real star here, though, would be the cinematography. They are using blurry focus at times, which helps to hide things. They are building an atmosphere that is creepy from the moment that we arrive in this house. I think the soundtrack does help here with the ominous sounding music 
as I was saying, this all builds what the movie needs, in my opinion. So I just have a little bit of trivia here that I wanted to share before I close this out here that I found on the IMDb page. Not explained in detail, but in Jewish religion, the vigil along one night of a corpse is named Shemira, which is the Hebrew word for watching or guarding, where a guardian called a shomer for males, shoromet for females, and shorum in plural indistinctly, passes the night with the recently deceased. The purpose of this vigil is custody to this recently deceased in his or her house until the sunrise for the arrival of the funeral service previous to the burial, standing in the same room with the corpse at all time. Mentioned in the prologue, usually a guardian is a familiar or close friend with the deceased, although it is possible to hire a guardian if there isn't a friend or relative to make the vigil or anyone available for it. Another attribute of the guardian is to read from the Torah, which is the Holy Bible for the Jewish, to prevent a demon or evil from taking possession of the deceased, as well as for avoiding that the Shomer or Shomeret be possessed by it as well. Apart from English, the language the characters speak in this movie is Yiddish. Although it uses the Hebrew alphabet, it is a member of the Germanic family of languages. Blumhouse acquired this for the domestic distribution rights to the film. And then this is Lynn Cohen's last feature film before her passing away in February of 2020. So then in conclusion here, this is an interesting movie. I was raised as a Christian, and I don't know much about the Jewish faith. There is something that is based in reality that bodes well for a horror story like we are getting here. I think that Yaakov is a good lead, and the characters, both good and evil, are directing him to where he ends up through the events of the night. The effects, cinematography, and soundtrack all help to build the atmosphere this movie needs as well. I would say this is a good movie. If what I'm saying sounds interesting, give it a watch. I'm not sure if I'll go higher than where I have now, but that doesn't mean that as a slight in the least bit. So my rating here for the vigil is going to be an 8 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as I don't feel like I necessarily need to delve anything deeper than what I have, and I would like people to check this movie out. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review.
And my second featured review on this episode is going to be The Medium. This is from 1951. This is written and directed by Giancarlo Menotti. This stars Marie Powers, Leopoldo Savona, and Anna Marie Elbergetti. And this also features Belva Kibler, Beverly Dame, and Donald Morgan. Now, on IMDb, this is a drama music film, but this is also a horror film, according to Letterboxd. And this is a co-production between Italy and the United States that is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a... Well, actually not enough ratings on Letterboxd, but it looks like it's hovering between two and a half to three stars. And our synopsis is Madame Flora is terrified when she perceives a supernatural presence during one of her fraudulent seances. There's also a little bit extended part here for the synopsis that is Minotti's first international success. The medium is a tragedy in two acts for five singers, a dance mime role and the chamber opera for 13 instruments and 14 players. There is a flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, horn, trumpet, percussion, piano with four hands and string quintet. The music is dissonant, eerie, and morbid, and includes melodies such as Oh Black Swan, which I didn't realize necessarily all of that, but it does make sense as I'm reflecting back after seeing this. But this is another movie that I didn't know existed until I was working my way through horror movies from 1951. I couldn't find this streaming anywhere, so I did end up finding a cheap copy on eBay. Now, the only thing that I knew going in was the title and that this was based on a play. I figured this movie would pair up, interestingly enough, for my Odyssey Through the Ones for this double feature. So then before I jump into the movie itself, let me do a little bit of notes on the key players, which this is going to be quite short. Now, our director of Minotis, this is his first film, and the two others, I don't recognize the names, but he does have a second one in the year of 1951, but this is the only one that I've seen and the only one that's in horror. Now, being a writer, it's much the same. He has three credits. This is the only one in horror and the only one that I have seen. Now, moving to the actors, our star of Powers, this was the only movie she had ever been in. And then Savona has two credits. This is the only one that's in horror, though, and the only one that I've seen. Now, the most accomplished actor, it looks like, in this is El Borghetti. She seemed to have worked with Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. I'm assuming because she could sing and everything like that, but she was in quite a few of their little movies, as she has 12 credits. This is her feature film debut, though, and this is the only one that I've seen of her and the only one that is in horror as well. So we begin this movie with Madame Flora, who is portrayed by Powers, as she's sitting on steps. She looks a little bit disheveled. Someone pops out of a building, tossing money to her as well as a necklace. Despite looking a bit rough, she doesn't necessarily look homeless or all that poor. She does get up and sells the necklace at a nearby shop for money. As she approaches home, she hears the beautiful singing voice of Monica, who is portrayed by El Borghetti. This young woman is her daughter. Together they live with Toby, who is portrayed by Savona. From something we learn later in this movie, he doesn't have a tongue, so he can't talk this whole time. He was a beggar that Madame Flora took in, but now he is best friends with Monica as they live a sheltered life. Now, Madame Flora is a psychic. Coming over is Mrs. Nolan, who's portrayed by Kibler, who wants to speak with her deceased daughter. I believe she was 16 at the time of passing, and it's been about a year, and she still is, you know, struggling with it. Not that I think people ever fully get over something like this. Now, joining her is Mrs. Gobinu, who's portrayed by Dame, and her husband of Mr. Gobinu, portrayed by Morgan. They've been coming to this place for years to meet with Madame Flora as so they could speak with their deceased son who died as a baby, and this is Mrs. Nolan's first time there. The seance begins, and Mrs. Nolan believes she sees her daughter. She is mystified. 
The Spectre tells her to give away all of her daughter's things and to find a locket and give that away as well. And the big thing here is just to kind of let her go. The Gobinus also believe they hear their son's voice. It all comes to an end though when Madame Flora believes that something grabbed her neck. She returns the money to her customers and goes into a panic. It is here that we learn that she's a fraud. She has been lying about her abilities just to make money. She now has to decide to reveal the truth, but more importantly, did something supernatural finally happen to her? So I think that's where I'll leave my recap, and because there isn't a whole lot to this story, but this is really more of a look at this family, which I'm going to go ahead and include Toby into that as well. Something I haven't relayed yet is that this is a musical where nobody is actually talking, there's no normal dialogue, it's only done by singing. So everything that is said is, you know, done in a singing voice. And I'll be honest, I think the singing from Powers and El Brighetti is good, but it's hard to figure out some of the things that they're saying. It's still impressive, and I think the rest of the music is fine. It actually helps to fit the vibe that they're going for, and it kind of helped develop that atmosphere. But I had trouble understanding some of the things they're trying to convey. So I want to delve next would be the story itself. Madame Flora is ripping these people off with the help of Monica and Toby. For the former, she is pretending to be a baby or someone else's daughter. I think it's a bit crazy that Mrs. Nolan doesn't recognize that that's not actually her daughter. But I could see someone so entranced and wanting to believe that she could be fooled, especially with like the lighting that they're doing in this apartment. Toby is doing the physical aspects like shaking the table as needed. There is the blurring of lines though. Yes, what Madame Flora is doing is bad, but she is also giving solace to these people as well. I'm more forgiving for Mrs. Nolan, but she has been messing with the Gobinus for years. She is robbing them, so I like to see her panicking and needing to reevaluate her life. At the core of this movie, it is Madame Flora from this point on descending into madness. I think that Powers does a solid job here. She looks like she's losing it. There is this question of, did something supernatural actually happen to her or did she imagine it? As she descends into madness, she blames Toby and thinks he did something. The movie is a tragedy, I will say that. She promises him that she won't punish him if he admits to it, and when he doesn't, he is beaten and then cast out of the house. I feel bad for him as he doesn't have anywhere to go, and he can't talk, so that makes it even more difficult. He also was close to Monica, and he loves her. Madame Flora is our villain here, and I think the performance from Powers fits what was needed. Aside from that, I think Savonia was good as Toby. He has to do a lot with his body and facial expressions, which he does very well. Albergetti is also good as the daughter. What is interesting here is that she only has Toby. Her mother is there, but she's more wrapped up in her business and kind of providing. The two of them, though, end up having a good time together in, you know, Toby and Monica. Kibler, Damon, Morgan are all solid as well to round this movie out for what was needed. And the last thing would be the cinematography and the effects. For the former, I think it's fine. They don't do much with moving the camera. I think the apartment where most is set is interesting. We don't get a lot in the way of effects here aside from the seance scene. I think they do some good stuff with lighting there. Overall, I would say that these are fine aspects for the movie. So in conclusion here, this is an interesting movie. We are getting an adaptation of an opera or a play or something along those lines. The story is something we've seen after this, and I'm not sure if this was borrowed from elsewhere or not, but I like the concept. Being that this is a musical where they sing their lines makes it difficult to understand at times. The acting, though, is solid. I'd say that the rest of the aspects of this movie are fine. For me, this movie is over average. It is lacking some things for me to go higher than that, though. And I'm not going to do a spoiler section, and I don't really have any trivia either, because there isn't really a whole lot to this movie. And, I mean, really the only trivia is just that El Brighetti, this is her first you know, feature film debut, which I've already kind of relayed to you as well. So my rating here for the medium is a 6 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show.
I would like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here for episode number 97. If you'd like to get in touch with me with any sort of feedback about anything that I'm doing on the show, or if you'd like to have anything read on the show, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is going to be Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And then just to make it easier on you, I will have all of those links in the show notes. And then just to kind of give you a little bit of background as well, Letterbox is where I'll be sharing every review that I do, which is, you know, horror and non-horror related. And then the Instagram accounts, I'll be posting any of the movie posters for anything that I have reviewed as well. And the last thing I would ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, and if you're also able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get to more listeners out there, that would be greatly appreciated. So then on episode number 98, it's going to be another Odyssey Through the Ones, as I'm going to be pairing up, it looks like the son of Dr. Jekyll, one I've never seen before, and I'm going to pair that up with a movie released this year of Demonic, which I've kind of heard some mixed reviews. It's kind of interesting to see it because I'm pretty sure that's the one from Neil Blumkamp or however else you say his name who did, I believe, um, District 9. So I think that's all I really need to do here for, you know, to get you up to speed and, you know, do some housekeeping stuff there. I'll also be watching more of the Summer Challenge series movies. So I won't waste any more of your time here, and I will say then in closing that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 